biggest demonstration for freedom in the history of our nation. where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. With this faith, we will be able to work together, to pray together, to struggle together, to go to jail together, to stand up for freedom together, knowing that we will be free one day. Let freedom ring, and when this happens, when we allow freedom ring, when we let it ring from every village and every hamlet, from every state and every city, we will be able to speed up that day when all of God's children, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics, will be able to join hands and sing in the words of the old Negro spiritual, Free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, we are free at last. Good morning, everyone. I appreciated uh, Sarah's comments of communion about the cross uh, being enough. I don't know if you noticed this week, uh, the cross fell through the platform and hit the ground, uh, which means I know you can uh, lay all your burdens on the cross, but one of yours was so heavy that it <laughs> collapsed the cross. So I'll just let you sit with that, which one you were that the, had the heavy burden on. This uh, I have a dream speech that Martin Luther King Jr. delivered. Uh, at the march in Washington on August 28, 1963, almost didn't happen. He gave a version of it to a rally in Detroit, and afterwards, when planning for the march in Washington, uh, suggested to one of his advisors, uh, Reverend Wyatt T. Walker, that he use a kind of a version of the I Have a Dream speech. And his advisor was against it, and in fact called it hackneyed and trite, is what he called it. Now later he would say, clearly I was wrong. But Martin Luther King Jr. was the last speaker to address the crowd in Washington that day, and as he spoke, it was actually a gospel singer named Mahalia Jackson that kept calling out to Martin Luther King, tell him about the dream, Martin, tell him about the dream. And what you just saw was a speech that will go down as one of the greatest in history as a result. It isn't a long speech, but it's a powerful speech, and the reason why is simply because it casts Ignore Brandon, he's doing something for a video coming up. <laughs> it casts a vision 
for what the world can look like. It was delivered at a time when discrimination and segregation was the norm, a time when racial tension and bigotry were prevalent, a time of chaos and upheaval, a time where an oppressed minority were attempting to have a seat at society's table. And it paints a picture of an ulterior condition, a different reality, a vision of what can be. A time when equality and racial harmony, justice itself, is not a reality. But it paints a picture of what is possible, and that is the power of vision. In fact, all major social movements begin with the power of vision. And usually, there is a leader who emerges who has the ability to see that alternative reality, that possible future, and they cast their, that vision in persuasive and powerful ways. These visionaries throughout history become revolutionaries, whether they ever intended to or not. They ultimately become our heroes. Schools are named after them. Streets are named after them. We set up monuments and statues in their their memory. And sometimes, like Martin Luther King Jr., they get their own day of the year, January 15th, in which we name it Martin Luther King Jr. Day. Some kids get out of school. Some businesses might close. And in cities all across America, ceremonies remembering and celebrating the visionary success will be observed. And we will often call the vision of the revolutionary their manifesto. It is usually a published verbal declaration of their intentions or motives or views of the issuer, be it an individual or group or political party or government. It is, if I get my way, this is how things are going to be. Here will be our new reality, a preferred reality, and one that is different than the present status quo. Visionaries never get up and say, let's just keep doing what we're doing now. Holders of power and control say that. It's in their best interest to say that. But we don't call them visionaries. Visionaries belong to those who have dreams, dreams of something better. And that is what makes Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech powerful. It was a vision, a dream indeed of something better, different not the status quo of discrimination, segregation, and racial bigotry, and it launched a movement, a civil rights movement, that was truly revolutionary in the United States. It affected the body politic of our nation, meaning how we organize ourselves as a nation, because it was inherently political. And whenever Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, what he is giving is his I have a dream speech. He calls it the kingdom of God, but what the kingdom of God for Jesus is, is a dream of what the earth can look like when God gets his way. It is his, I have a dream speech. The earth controlled by other kingdoms looks like this. This is the status quo. This is our present reality. But the earth controlled by God, meaning his kingdom, the extent of his kingdom reign and rule looks like this. Jesus is a visionary. He's a revolutionary. He is launching a movement that will challenge all other kingdoms, which, by the way, is what gets him killed. It is a manifesto of what can be a preferred reality. So let me read you just the preamble of Jesus' manifesto. It's from Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. It says this, 
When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and he sat down. And his disciples came to him and he began to teach them and he said this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And if I had to pick the manifesto of Jesus' dream for what life looks like on the earth when God gets His way, it's the Sermon on the Mount found in Matthews chapter 5-7. to And in it, those who are poor in spirit, which by the way would not be considered a virtue. Like I know today we go, oh, poor in spirit, but 2,000 years ago, hey, you're poor in spirit would not be a compliment. That would not be considered a great virtue. They are now blessed. Those who mourn, And who wants to be in that category? They'll be the ones who are comforted. The meek, which was still no compliment. No one wanted to be the meek. They wanted to be the movers and shakers of society. But the meek will now inherit the earth. Those who are hungry. And what Jesus is doing, he's establishing a new kingdom, a new value system, a new way of measuring blessing and greatness and life. This is his dream for the earth when God gets his way. And Jesus is not talking to the power brokers who would be set on keeping the status quo because it was in their best interest. No, he was talking to a persecuted minority, a people oppressed, not only by foreign governments like the Romans, but by their own religious and political leaders. And if you fast forward to the end of the story, guess who kills Jesus? The Romans and his own religious and political leaders. Most visionaries and revolutionaries eventually are killed for their manifestos that change the status quo, and Jesus will be no exception. And the reason why is because it affects the body politic. There is a way that we function and that we relate to one another in society, whether that be in a community or a state or a nation. In fact, the Greeks had a word for that. Polis was their name. It was sort of the city-state, and how the city-state operated was called the body politicos. That's how we get our word politics. And, and Jesus, if, if Jesus' message was simply some ethereal message about, hey, listen, just be nice to everybody and love everybody, and when you die, you get to go to heaven, nobody gets killed for that. They just don't. Like, who's threatened by, be nice to everybody, love everybody, when you die, you get to go to heaven. But that wasn't Jesus' dream. Jesus' dream disrupted the polis, the the politicos, which oftentimes you will, why do you got to preach about politics from the pulpit? What I'd say is, because the teachings of Jesus are political. How could you follow after Jesus confessing him as Lord and that not affect your politics? His lordship affects everything, including politics, which though is different than being partisan. Jesus is political, he is not partisan, which means he's not a Republican, and Jesus is not a Democrat, but Jesus' dream affects 
politics. It did when he first delivered his manifesto and lived out his revolution on the earth, and it does still in 2018. Now, what this will require from us is to enter into the mind of Christ and apply his dream to South Bend. So in the series, as we're asking, how does heaven come down to South Bend? It will be for us now to enter into the mind of Christ and to apply his dream of what God gets, what happens on the earth, happens on the earth, what God wants to happen on the earth here in South Bend. And we're not without resources in this. Jesus himself will teach us, and Paul will teach, like Paul will say in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, the person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit, but of God considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. The person with the Spirit makes judgments about all things, but such a person is not subject to merely human judgment for who has known the mind of the Lord as, so as to instruct him. And then he says this, he says, but we have the mind of Christ. Or Jesus himself will say in John 14, verse 25 to his disciples, all this I have spoken while still with you, but the advocate, meaning the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Now, this is important because, admittedly, you are not going to find a book, chapter, and verse that will tell us how to deal with graduation rates in the South Bend School Corporation, or how we deal with I-STEP test scores in South Bend, Indiana. But as we enter into the dream of Jesus, the mind of Christ, and counseled by the Holy Spirit, we can begin to imagine what it would look like for what God wants to happen actually happens in South Bend. But I have to tell you something very important. You cannot understand the kingdom of God until you understand its preeminence, its priority, and its exclusivity. Last week, if you remember, we talked about the location. Like, if you had to pick, where's the place where we could point to where the full extent of God's reign and rule is, where what God wants to happen does in fact happen? Like, where would that be now? It's heaven. For now, at least, heaven, because in heaven, there are no other kingdoms that exist outside of God's kingdom. Not so for us here on the earth. But if you want to be an ambassador of Jesus and step into the dream of Jesus, which is the kingdom of God, guess what you have to do? You have to pledge your allegiance to the kingdom of God, understanding that the kingdom of God is preeminent and has priority and is exclusive. You cannot pledge your allegiance to the kingdom of God and the United States of America at the same time because those are two different kingdoms. America is not the kingdom of God. Your concern is not what is best for America. Your concern is what is best for the kingdom of God. And you have to act accordingly because that's what an ambassador does. The American ambassador to Greece does not ask what is best for Greece, at least not primarily. They ask what is best for America as it interacts with Greece. They represent and serve the interest of the United States. They earn diplomacy for the United States. It's the same way for us as ambassadors of God's kingdom. This is why just because America tells us how enemies should be treated doesn't mean anything to us because we pledged our allegiance to the kingdom of God where God gets his way, where what he wants to happen happens. And I think in Jesus' dream, he tells us how we're supposed to treat our enemies. And I've noticed recently, especially in evangelicalism in America, there seems to be this current resurgence of nationalism, and I'm telling you, it is contrary and antithetical to the kingdom of God. 
And this is what it means to confess Jesus as Lord. In fact, at the time of the Bible, when uh, the disciples are alive, do you know who is kurios, which is the word for Lord? you know who it is? It's Caesar, always. There were no other confessions. And so when this ragtag group of individuals start confessing that Jesus is their kurios, their Lord, what it meant was Caesar was not. And many of them paid with their lives for that. And nowadays, we have dumbed that down to some pre-baptismal incantation that somehow indicates our intellectual assent that Jesus is the Son of God, but that isn't what confession meant. It meant that you were pledging yourself to Jesus as the king of that kingdom, pledging yourself to that dream of what God wants to happen, happens. But I'm telling you honestly, the greatest threat to the kingdom of God, at least in my life, is the kingdom of Sam. The greatest competition of what God wants to happen, actually happening in my life, is what I want to actually happen in my life. The extent of my reign and rule. And my guess is the same goes for you. The greatest threat to the effective range of God's will in your life is the freedom He has granted you to exercise the effective range of your own will. And that is why Jesus' manifesto on the Sermon on the Mount begins with a challenge. So in Matthew chapter 5 is where the Sermon on the Mount starts. But right before you get there, in Matthew chapter 4 verse 17, Jesus says this. It's one of the first words that He ever speaks publicly. He says this. Verse 17, from that time on, Jesus began to preach. What's the first word he says? Repent. For the kingdom of heaven has come near. Repent. For the kingdom of heaven has come near. The first step to seeing God's kingdom realized in your life and around you is your willingness and ability to repent. And Jesus' first comments tie repentance directly to participating in the kingdom of God. What he is saying is, your kingdom, the extent of your effective reign and rule, has to yield to God's kingdom. Repentance means no longer living out what you want, because that's what Adam and Eve did, but because you've confessed Jesus as Lord, living out what God wants in your life. And the only way you can let what God wants to happen happen around you is when you're willing to lay down your own kingdom to make it so. Because there are too many kingdom opportunities that are going to come your way that you, if your kingdom is primary, you're going to miss it. For no other reason than just simply this. I don't want to. There are going to be difficult people come across your path to love. And if we're talking about the kingdom of Sam... I'd rather just not be inconvenienced by it. I'd rather just ignore it. I'd rather just go home and put on my pajamas and relax watching Netflix. But if what God wants to happen is going to happen, if I yield my kingdom to His kingdom, then I place myself in situations that maybe the kingdom of Sam would not have necessarily have chosen. And I promise you this, being an ambassador of the kingdom of God is going to place you in situations and circumstances that your natural self is going to find uncomfortable, that you're going to have to get out of your comfort zone. I mean, good grief. I mean, the apostles, they all died. <laughs> they all died putting down their kingdom to live for the kingdom of God. I'm talking about maybe just going back out on a Tuesday evening to do something. I might, it might get you killed too, but most likely you'll just find yourself in situations again and again that make you go, oh man. What in the world am I doing? <laughs> this is so not me. I, would, I wouldn't be doing this at all if God didn't want me to. So you're out there, okay. I'm going to be obedient, God. But I got no clue what I'm doing. And if you don't give me your spirit to empower me for this, this isn't going to work out at all. You, you know what God is going to do? He's going to give you his Holy Spirit to empower you to do 
what God wants to happen, happening right here in South Bend. And what that might mean for some of you might be, you're going to have a moment where you're going to actually pray for someone you just met in a grocery store who needs healing. And afterwards, you're going to go, that was so not me. Like, I just, I do not do that. But there was a moment where God's kingdom was calling you to, do, to lay down your kingdom to do just that. For others of you, it might be weekly you commit to tutoring a student from Monroe. For others of you, it might be just financially supporting a pregnant teenage mother. For others, it might be taking the time to help somebody who's homeless with a resume to help them walk out of homelessness. Others of you, it will be demanding change for a system in our community that's hurting those who are trapped in poverty. Maybe for another, it's you're going to visit a, every week a widow at a local nursing home because she has no one in her life. And you'll do that week after week, month after month, and no one will know. For others, it might be just mowing the yard of a neighbor who's going through a series of chronic medical issues. For others of you, it might be just using your voice and influence to advocate for those who are victims of injustice. For some, it might be just you're willing to transport people to celebrate recovery on Monday evenings. For others, it might be you're going to watch a couple of kids, and you wouldn't normally do this, but there's a couple, couple that you love who are on the verge of divorce, and you're going to watch their kids so they can have a date night or even go see a counselor. And if you're a student, it might be intentionally sitting with a kid at lunch who's typically alone, or better yet, inviting the kid who's always getting bullied to sit with you, and you protect them. And the list could go on and on. The only thing we need to do is step into the dream of Jesus and inspired by the Holy Spirit, imagine what it looks like for what God wants to happen, happens. But I know if I'm living for the kingdom of Sam, I'm probably not going to do any of the above. And the reason why is just no greater than, I just don't feel like it. But when you die to yourself, meaning my personal kingdom, and live for the kingdom of God, I commit myself to do all of these things. And let me tell you a little secret when it comes to prayer, because this is connected. I've always found it uh, strange how optimistic Jesus is about getting anything I ask for when it comes to praying. Anyone else ever, like you read the teachings of Jesus on prayer and you can ask for anything in my name? Like, like really? Because my personal experience isn't kind of panning that out just yet, Jesus. So here's what he says, John 14, verses 12 to 14. Very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing. I just stopped there for a moment. Well, that's crazy to self, isn't it? Anyone got a pool in their backyard? I try walking on that for a moment and see how that goes for like, really? In fact, he says, in fact, they will do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. And then he says this, verse 13, and I will do whatever you ask in my name so the Father may be glorified in the Son. Verse 14, he repeats it. You may ask for anything in my name and I will do it. Did you hear that? Father, I pray right now for the lottery numbers that are coming out this week, that the, in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, but I'm the winner. I'm not sharing. I'm just like, listen, this is important. In my name is not some magical incantation we stick at the end of the prayer. We do like, in Jesus' name, amen. In my name means a whole lot more than that. It's to pray in the very essence, in the very will of Jesus. Meaning, when your heart and Jesus' heart are on the same page, when Jesus' desires are your desires, you can ask for anything you want and it will happen. 
When I have so surrendered myself to Jesus and yielded my kingdom to Jesus' kingdom, what that will then mean is that the kingdom of Sam, meaning the extent of my effective will, will be the same as the kingdom of God. That what I want is what God wants. And when that happens, I can ask for whatever I want. Because what I want will be consistent to the heart and desire of God. And that's living life in the kingdom. And so let's ask, what, what do you imagine Jesus would do if he lived in South Bend? And this is a serious question. I mean, I don't, I don't think it's impossible to answer here. Um, it might take some divine imagination and thinking about it for a moment. But let's just pretend for a moment that Jesus didn't live 2,000 years ago in Palestine, but he lives 2018 right here on the south side of South Bend. Let's say he lives on Irvington Street. Anyone live on Irvington, around Irvington, close to it? Anyone? Okay, several of you here. Jesus is now your neighbor. <laughs> what do you think he would do? Like, who do you think he would hang out with? Where do you think he would spend his time? How would he treat his neighbors? And where would he work? And in the workplace, how would he treat his employers or his managers or his fellow employees? Like, what do you think would break his heart on the south side of South Bend? And what do you think would get that reaction of that in righteous indignation here on the south side of South Bend? What do you think would trigger his compassion that we see over and over again in the Gospels? And the Gospels paint a pretty good picture of the kind of people he would hang around. And I think you were familiar with it enough to know it got him in trouble with his contemporaries, right? Like Jesus was always in trouble for the kind of people he hung out with. So I would not be totally surprised if Jesus was living on Irvington if you were driving down Michigan and you go, did I just see Jesus outside of Peach's Show Bar on Michigan talking to a prostitute? Yeah, he might have. Did I just see Jesus hanging out with some pretty vulgar dudes at the Green Star Bar on Miami Street? Yeah, probably. Did I just see Jesus on Dubell Street hanging out and interacting with some guys from the Dog Life Gang? You very well could have. All of these scenarios would be fairly scandalous to us, but that's because we picture Jesus hanging out at church like us. But he told his critics very clearly his intentions. In Luke chapter 5, verse 30, he says, But the Pharisees of the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus just answered, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And so I think Jesus would come to Living Stones, especially for the excellent sermons. <laughs> but he wouldn't spend all of his time here. Mm-mm. He'd be too busy out there doing the kingdom stuff. Christians tend to spend way too much time doing churchy things. And, and I think it's better, it used to be good grief when I was growing up in church. We had Sunday morning Bible study, right after that was Sunday morning worship. Then you went home, took a quick nap, you came back that night for Sunday night worship. And then you came back on Wednesday night for Wednesday night Bible study. And in between there, you had small group time or youth group time or some service activity. I mean, who has time to hang out with the sick? You're spending your time with all the church people doing churchy things. Maybe the best thing we could do for the kingdom of God on the south side is we all go home and just throw a barbecue party and invite all of our neighbors even the old crotchety one that no one likes to be around. And if one doesn't come to mind, it's you. <laughs> Maybe instead of having group meetings, we just go hang out at Chippewa Bowling Alley, not as a huddled group keeping to ourselves, 
but as a gregarious bunch, inviting others into an opportunity of joy and laughter and inclusion and relationship, and just seeing where the Holy Spirit takes all of this. Maybe instead of another churchy activity, you volunteer instead at the LGTBQ Center in South Bend. These are the things I picture Jesus doing. Kingdom stuff on the south side of South Bend. We should go do those things too. Until every other church in our area hears about it and thinks we aren't a real church because of who we hang out with, then we'll know we look like Jesus. And I've said it before, but it is amazing to me who feels comfortable around Jesus. Because I promise you, if, if you asked a prostitute to come to church with you this morning, my guess is most likely she'll immediately think, I will not be okay in a church. I mean, I'll be judged, looked down upon, if anyone knew. I mean, there'll just be total discomfort. But prostitutes love to hang out with Jesus. Like, what kind of a person does Jesus have to be in regards to his heart and love and acceptance and peace that prostitutes would feel comfortable hanging out with this holy dude who they knew was both a rabbi, a teacher, and a healer? But you know who doesn't feel comfortable around Jesus? Religious people. And there has to be a lesson in that for us. And that's why Randy Templeton has already pledged to get two uh, arm sleeves and he's going to get a Harley and hang out at Hell's Angels on Friday nights. That's Randy just being Jesus on the south side. Can you imagine Randy with arm sleeve tattoos? In the kingdom of Sam it exists, I promise you. But let's bring it into our sphere of influence. Let me pick on uh, Monroe teachers and administrators for just a moment, because it's easy to do. <laughs> what would it look like for God to get his way at Monroe School? For what he wants to happen, happens. Clearly, there's more recess time, teachers get more breaks, smaller class sizes, and a gong button for students and or parents, if necessary, that kicks them out. If Jesus were a substitute teacher at Monroe tomorrow, what would that look like? And right now every teacher goes, yeah, I'd like to see that myself. What would that look like for Jesus to substitute? What would Jesus prioritize in regards to their physical, spiritual, mental, and educational needs of those children? What would he do to meet those needs? How would he interact with them? How would he speak? What would be his words, his tone? Knowing the stories of some of those children, what would move him to compassion? How would he treat his educational peers? What would he advocate for downtown? And what issues would surface that he would speak prophetically to to make a change? And these are the questions that you should ask if you're a teacher at Monroe and attempt to walk accordingly. And then I would just ask everyone in the room, think about where you'll be in the morning. Like, what school are you at? Or what job do you have? Where is the sphere of your influence? How will you be an ambassador of Jesus there? And how you determine that is to creatively imagine, inspired by the Spirit and informed in prayer and Scripture and in community, what would Jesus be doing if he had your job? Or if he was a student at Riley? Or if he lived in your neighborhood? And one point of caution, and this is important, you are not their Savior. Jesus is their Savior. If you teach at Monroe, I need you to be, not be naive into thinking you're going to rescue or save any of those children. That is not your job. They have a Savior, and it isn't you. And you need to know there's 
only so much that is in your effective will. There are other kingdoms that exist, and those children will leave your classroom and enter into kingdoms that belong to others. And sometimes those kingdoms are bad, and they are ruled by powers and principalities that are opposed to Jesus. Your job is to continue to be a launching place for God's kingdom, but be wise and therefore gracious, meaning do not be discouraged with yourself when other kingdoms exist as well. But this is what it means for heaven to come to South Bend. This is what it means to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done in South Bend, just like it is in heaven. It is for you to walk in your sphere of influence with a vision of the dream of Jesus, for you to be a radical revolutionary of love who speaks not what is, but what can be and to say and do what it takes to see what can be realized. For our task is not to hang on until we die, but rather our task is while we're living to bring heaven here to earth, to provide here and now rescue missions for those who are living here and now in hell, who are victims of the powers and principalities of competing kingdoms. That's what it means to be an ambassador of Jesus, bringing heaven here to our neighborhood, our community, and to South Bend. Did you read in the paper, seeing the news about a week ago, that South Bend has the highest uh, violence rate in the state? Did you say in the state? Did you see this article? We'll pick up with that next week uh, as we continue our series.